morning, everyone. My, good morning. My name is Sarah Anderson, and I have the joy of teaching your pre-kindergarten, preschool children, and a little older. And this morning, I also have the privilege of reading our scripture passage for today. 1 Corinthians 4, 8 through 13. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When slandered, we retreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I think you may be seated. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Miss Sarah. First Corinthians chapter four, verses eight through thirteen. Let me pray. Then we're gonna get after it. God, we thank you for the love you have shown us. We pray as we take a few minutes in your word this morning that you, by your grace and the power of your Holy Spirit, would transform our hearts to be like Jesus. We pray you would give us the faith to believe that in those areas where you want to build us up and encourage us, Lord, we would receive that encouragement and in those places where you need to call us to repentance, that you would soften our hearts to say, yes, Jesus, not our way, but your way be done. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. 1 Corinthians 4, 8 through 13. I want to address one concern. I can tell, I can feel it. Some of you are wondering, if we come to church at 11, will you preach until 2? <laughs> Maybe. Amen. Maybe. Maybe I will. Try and stop me. I don't know. Don't worry about it. The NFL will be over by then anyway. I'm getting ready. I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm, I don't, I'm hesitant to start because some of you are going to be offended by the beginning of the message, much, much less the middle and the end. Because I'm going to pick on someone you may like. And I don't dislike the individual, it's just they're incorrect in some ways. I read a news story this week that Lakewood Church... Houston, Texas, pastored by a person you may know. His name is Joel Osteen. They paid off the loan that they had taken to renovate the compact center, which is what they purchased. So they paid off their $100 million loan this week for the funds they used to renovate the compact center, which for NBA fans, that's where Houston Rockets played. They bought that for their church. You know, they have, I don't know, a couple of 45,000 people attending uh, their church. So good for them. Whatever, right? I don't have a problem with them. I have a problem with their big old church. I don't have a problem with them paying off 100 million bucks. No problem with that. I have a problem with what was said. 
So what was said in celebration of this is one of the individuals, I think it was either uh, Joel Osteen or his wife, compared what was done by the people of Lakewood Church with the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, saying, having sowed a little, much has come. And so the, the argument is when you give a little, you get a lot. And when you are a good steward with the little, you are put in charge of a lot. So, from a biblical standpoint, can I tell you this? I don't disagree with that at all. 100% I agree with that. But here's what I, where I want to challenge us our thinking. Are you ready? It's not what, it's when. Do you, you understand what I'm saying? It's not what, it's when. The argument that was presented in celebration of paying off this loan was, because we sowed a little, we got a lot. When? Now. And the Bible says, no, no, no. You, you, you are rewarded when, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians. That day. That day is the when. So yes, the Lord blesses and bestows upon us glory and honor and riches and all those things. When? That day. That day. So that's the difference. The difference is not what glory we ought to seek. The, the question is, when do we want our glory? And the reason I bring this up, not just to pick on uh, Joel Osteen, he doesn't care what I think. The reason is because the error that was made there, saying if you sow a lot today, you get a lot today, is the same error that the Corinthian believers were making in their life. The, the same error was they wanted the blessing and glory and honor of serving the Lord to occur when? Right now. That's when you receive the blessing and glory and honor of serving the Lord. And the Apostle Paul is going to challenge them. No, we're going to look at what, what God teaches us in the gospel about when the glory comes. So in our passage today, you have two options. We're, the, the title of the message on uh, your note sheet is, What is your hope of glory? I'm going to give you your two options for that. There might be other options, but we're only going to consider two. Do you hope that you will have glory here and now and that glory will just simply keep getting better and better? That's one of the options. That's the option that was described by Joel Osteen related to his church. Let's serve the Lord now and experience today the glory getting better and better and better when? Right now. So that's one option. And that's the option the believers in Corinth were pursuing. The other option is the option Paul is pursuing. So one is, let's hope glory keeps getting better here and now. The other one is, I want my glory in eternity. I'll take my glory then. That's the second option. So do you want your glory now? Or do you want your glory in eternity? So what is your hope of glory verses 8 through 10 what is your hope of glory do you hope that your glory is experienced in this life and it keeps getting better and better and better i want to present to you some information that says that's not possible a study was done and an article was written which i read and it's on the internet so it's true <laughs> and it gave the different things in our life and when we peek at those things because if you want your glory to keep getting better and better, let's look at some things normal people do in life and find out when we peek at those things. So, say you want to learn a new language. Say you want to learn a new language. When is the peak time for you to be able to learn a new language? Seven years old. 
It's all down here, from, downhill from, I see you riding down Gallica. Rod, you learned uh, that at seven, right? Well, you grew up in the Ivory Coast, so that's when you did it. Good call. That's the way to do it. Because once you go past seven, it's all downhill. Anybody in their like, middle age or later tried to do, learn a new language? Isn't it frustrating? Right, I'm still trying to learn English. <laughs> when is the peak processing uh, power of the human brain? Peak processing power of the human brain, age 18. Right? I know. Wasted on the young. <laughs> like when you need it, right? Not when I'm 18. I was making no significant decisions then. All right. When is your peak ability to run a marathon? If you're going to run a marathon, want to get the best time possible, some of you are saying, well, that's never been a goal. That's fine. It's when you're 28. After the age of 28, your ability to, to do your best in a marathon is going to decline ever since. All right, another one. I only have uh, two more. Another one is the peak ability for a person to put themselves in the shoes of others and understand where they're coming from. We call that empathy. In business circles, we call it EQI. The ability to understand someone else's perspective, appreciate it, and value it, and understand, okay, I can see where you're coming from. And, and that's actually a really, really important skill to have. The ability to empathize and understand where other people are coming. Where does that peak? That's at age 51. So before 51, you're having trouble understanding where people are coming from. And then after 51, well, we really just don't care. After, after 51, was like, this is what you think. Yeah, okay, whatever. Okay, last one. This one is going to be really helpful for all of us. Okay, this is the last one. Where is, and this was based on a survey. They said the peak time, the, the highest time in your life when you have the best view of your own body, body image. This is an important thing. People want to look good. They want to feel like they look good. That, right? When is the, the peak time when you say, you know what? I'm looking good. <laughs> when is it? This is what's funny. 74. <laughs> 74. See, we're all going to say like 18 or 23 or one of these other. No, 74-year-old. Do you know why? It's like, you know what? This is because you're okay with it. This is me. You know, and you guys have been to the beach and seen the 74-year-olds. They don't have a problem. It's all out there. So they got no problem. Yeah, soak it in, they're saying. Take a long look. I don't know how we're going to... What's my point with all these things besides... Is this. If you want your glory here, it peaks at some point in everything. In everything. It always peaks and then it's downhill from there. Seeking to experience the glory of the coming kingdom in this broken world means we settle for a lesser glory. And, and not only that, we devalue the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse eight. Paul says this to the people in Corinth. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you've become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. 
So Paul here is saying Corinth has set their eyes on worldly glory, and in their minds, according to the believers in Corinth, they've actually achieved it. The primary way in which they're seeking glory is to be seen by the world around them as intellectual and sophisticated, cosmopolitan members of this important city that the world around them would look at the believers in Corinth and say, oh, they get it, they matter, they're, they're significant. I mean, to the people in Corinth, they think they've achieved it. They've engaged with these important intellectual conversation with the sophists, the people of wisdom. And, and in their eyes, they're, reign, they're beginning to reign and experience the glory that comes with pursuing the glory of their own, but also connected with the kingdom of God. And Paul is saying, ironically, and when we say the Bible is ironic, it's just a nice Christian way of saying he's being sarcastic, but it feels unspiritual to say he's being sarcastic. So I'll just say it, he's being sarcastic. Already you have all you want, he's saying, oh, oh, I guess you have everything. You've become rich, you've become kings. And, and what he's saying is that you've set your minds on the glory of the world, and, you, and you're achieving it. In their own minds, they have uh, achieved it. And then look what he follows up. This is the second part of verse eight. And he says, oh, and would that you did reign so we might share the rule with you. He's saying this, in your mind you're reigning, but you're not. And Paul says, I wish you were. I wish you were reigning. And why would Paul say that? Because as believers, he's saying, if you were reigning, Jesus is here. He's come back. And, I, and he's saying to the believers in Corinth, I wish you were achieving glory, because if you were achieving the glory God intended for you, he'd be here, and we'd be done. It would be that day, and we would receive our commendation. So Paul says, I wish that you were reigning. It's also a nice way of saying, but you're not. So the Corinthian believers want the world around them to be impressed with them and to achieve glory in the world around them. And he's saying two things. He's saying, first of all, you're not really reigning. The world is not impressed with you. And secondly, you're not reigning because Jesus hasn't come back yet. So let's just think about that for a second in terms of wanting the, the world to be impressed with us, not to pick on the Osteens or Lakewood Church anymore, but here we go. <laughs> They purchased the, the compact center through a lease agreement in early 2000s. And then over the course of what, what year is it? 2024, they were able to renovate it and pay off their $100 million loan. So 45,000 people got together and were able to uh, purchase a building and renovate a building over the course of 23 years. That's impressive. Their church is bigger than ours. You know, I've been uh, serving in this church, I don't know, it feels like uh, 10 minutes. It's been so wonderful. It, um, <laughs> I don't know, 2009. And in that time, we've renovated the worship center and the fireside room, okay? But no news outlets came in that We would really like to see what this church accomplished in the fireside room. No, it's not that big a deal, right? So we'd, we'd compare us to, to the compact center, big deal, we renovated the fireside room. It's fantastic, but it's not the compact center, all right? So you say, well, gee, they did kind of a big deal, didn't they? I mean, it's kind of a big deal, right? Well, let's just pump the brakes a little bit. Another guy bought something in the early 2000s. His name is Mark Cuban. Heard of this guy? Okay, Mark Cuban in the early 2000s, he didn't buy an NBA arena, he bought an NBA team, the Dallas Mavericks. He paid out of his own pocket $285 million. That's a lot of money. That's more money than I have. <laughs> Over the course of time, in the same time frame, I think interestingly, he held on to that, and so he bought the team, which means you get to go to the games for free, which is cool. <laughs> 
And then in 2024, here just recently, he sold his share of the team. Did you hear about this? So he buys the team, and to about the time that Lakewood is buying their building, goes to free basketball for 20 years, and sells the team for, anybody remember? $3.5 billion. That's a good return on investment if you're wondering how that works. <laughs> right, 285 million bucks, he had laying around, spent it, 20 years later, he makes $3.5 billion. That's a nice return. That's his job. That's, a, that's his job, right? So who has greater glory? Do you think Mark Cuban read the news about Lakewood Church and said, oh, wow. Oh, wow, really? You were able to pay off a loan for $100 million in the time frame it took me to make $3.25 billion. It's not impressive. It's not impressive. The greatest glory we can achieve in this world, the world will go, meh. It's just not, we just can't pull it off. And, and so Paul is saying, for the one thing, why would you settle for a lesser glory than eternal glory? Second thing, the world's not impressed and they won't be. Why are you bothering? You aren't reigning. If you were reigning, Jesus would come back, look around, he's not back. You settled for a lesser glory. Verse nine. I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all, like men sentenced to death because we've become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. Paul now describes his glory. He's not bragging, but he, he's describing the pathway for him to achieving glory. He wants to be and understand his ministry in the gospel consigns him to a place where suffering and humiliation are a function of the job from time to time. Not always, but sometimes. And so he describes his ministry as not a, a place where the world glories in him, but a place where he is viewed the way a person consigned to the arena would be viewed. The, the person who, the last people in the arena were the ones subject to the death penalty. Uh, and so they would be thrown out into the arena and animals would be released. It's really terrible. And so he said, that's what my life is like. Where I am like a POW, he says, those at the end of the parade, the spectacle, that when a, a, an invading army goes in, they bring the POWs back, they're always at the end, shackled together and usually naked. And he's saying, this is what I see as the way in which I experience Christ's glory in the gospel here. Because I want my glory not here, but there. And the, and the pathway to eternal glory is to press into the ways in which Christ experienced this world. So what Paul is saying is that which embarrasses you, Corinth, about me, because that was their attitude to him. They were embarrassed about Paul's suffering because his suffering must indicate something's wrong with him. His suffering must indicate something's wrong with his teaching. His suffering must indicate that he doesn't measure up. So that which embarrasses Corinth about Paul, Paul counts as his means to glory in Christ. That's his hope, is, is the evidence that his ministry is in the gospel of Jesus is that from time to time, not always, but from time to time, it entails suffering and humiliation. That's not a mark of a failed a life in the gospel. It's a mark of a participation in life in the gospel. Verse 10, we are fools for Christ's sake, but you, you are wise in Christ. He's two different perspectives. He says, I view myself, I want the world to see me as a fool because I trust Jesus, whereas you want the world to see you as wise. 
We are weak, you are strong. You, Corinth, are held in honor. We are in disrepute. He's contrasting his experience of the gospel and the life of the believers in Corinth. And he's saying, which one? Look at your life that you're pursuing and look at my life and what I am pursuing and you tell me which one is more like Jesus. That's all he's doing. Which one, your life or my life, is more like Jesus? To be fool to be willing to put it all in God's hands and say whatever he brings I trust or to pursue commendation in this world? Is it, is it to be seen as weak because a person is willing to trust Jesus or do you want to be seen as strong in the world, competent, confident, successful? Do you want to be humiliated in this world or do you want to experience ex exaltation in this world? Corinthian believers wanted to be wise, strong, and exalted. And they thought that was a sure sign that their life in Christ mattered. And Paul says, I'll be a fool, and I will be weak, and I will be humiliated. And Paul's view was, this is what Jesus' life was like. And so I will pursue a ministry and a life in the gospel that is willing, when necessary, when God deems, uh, sees fit in my life to experience the things that the Corinthians wanted to avoid at all cost. How was Jesus held in this world? Do you remember? Have you read the, have you read the book? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, have you read it? How was Jesus held in this world? People liked him when? When the buffet was open. If Jesus was serving food, he was popular. Now, when he changed it from serving food to saying something like, I think it's John 6, you know what, no dinner today. However, if you want to live forever in my kingdom, eat my flesh and drink my blood. What happened then? Disciples started going away. Disciples started going away. The crowd started thinning out. So obviously his ministry was a total failure. Jesus had no need to buy a compact center. Didn't have enough people. He was driving them away. Finally, he turns to his disciples, turns to the 12. Well, you're going to leave too? And what did Peter say? To whom shall we go? You have the very words of life. So that's getting it. I will take my glory with you, Jesus, even though in this life it's going to be hard. You have the words of life. That's the shift. Corinthian believers had lost that. They wanted a little bit of Jesus and a whole lot of the glory that the world has to offer. And Paul says, you and I are not the same. You are choosing a short-sighted glory. Look at Luke chapter one, verses 18 through 21. I wanna remind you of some places we've already been briefly. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 21. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to... But to but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through fo the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Why is that? The gospel saves us from, from some very specific things. 
The problem is with the human experience, because of our rebellion against God, each and every person will experience the negative effects of their own sin. Anybody ever sinned and have it ruin like almost an entire day? Right, yeah, and maybe a whole week, maybe you're suffering the consequences of your own sin for decades, right? Not only that, does sin lead to very terrible consequences in our day-to-day experience, sin kills everybody. The mortality rate of this planet is 100%. Everybody dies. This planet is a dangerous place to live. And so what the cross says is this, if you trust that what Jesus did on the cross, you are forgiven of your sin. Completely forgiven, no shame, no guilt. You are given the righteousness of Jesus. So when God views you, when you're in Christ by faith, he views you as righteous as Jesus. We don't, we see it. <laughs> but God sees you and says, no, you have, you have received the righteousness of Christ, your same guilt, and all that went on Jesus. Then Jesus rose from the dead, and when we trust Jesus, that means we live forever. So therefore, the two things that are a big problem in this life, sin and death, have no hold over a Christian. I heard a little bit. I, I appreciate it. There we go. I mean, I just, you live forever. That's good news, by the way. Maybe you had a bad week. I don't, you live forever in Christ. Sin has no claim on you. In Christ, you live forever. This is, this is good news. And the, and the world looks at us and says, that's the dumbest thing we've ever heard. And why is that? It's not for no reason. It's because... We all have problems and we assume the biggest problem we have is not sin and death. The biggest problem we have is a boss we don't like, a job we don't like, a, a mortgage we can't afford, a car that broke down, a disease that we have. The, we, we think the problems of this world are bigger than the problems of sin and death. And so therefore the gospel seems foolish to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, who see what we really need by the work of the Holy Spirit, the gospel offers us hope that cannot be taken away. Look at verses uh, one through five of 1 Corinthians two. And I, when I come to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness, fear, trembling. My speech and my message were not plausible words of wisdom, but the demonstration of the power of the Spirit, so that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. He's saying, look, the way in which I came to you, city of Corinth, is I just brought you the gospel. I said, your hope needs to be in Jesus and Jesus alone. Jesus is our hope and Jesus is our model. The way in which Jesus lived is the way in which we ought to live, which is humble service until the day of glory, which is not today, it's that day. And the people of Corinth, having received the gospel, decided they wanted glory right now. And Paul says, you are now living sideways of the power of the gospel. What is your hope of glory? Is your hope of glory in this life that your life just keeps getting better and better and better? And Paul and the Bible and the gospel tell us that's short-sighted. It's foolish. Now, just because now is not the time for our glory doesn't mean we shouldn't seek glory. We are, in fact, made in the image of God, which means we are people who are designed to experience the glory of God. So we ought to seek glory, shouldn't we? Yes, we do. We seek glory. The question is not, do we seek glory? It is when. We should seek glory that lasts forever, not temporary glory. So what is your hope of glory? Is it the glory that keeps getting better in this world, or as we're gonna look at 11 through 13, is it the eternal glory that is still to come? 
I want to read an excerpt from C.S. Lewis. I've read it before, but I'm going to read it again because I like it. It's from his book, The Weight of Glory. I think it's in the chapter in The Weight of Glory called The Weight of Glory. And uh, this is a familiar passage, but it speaks to where where we're going to go. So here it is. C.S. Lewis, you've heard of him? Bible, tri- oh, not Bible trivia, it's a trivia time. You know what day uh, C.S. Lewis died? We know that? Same day as JFK. That's why nobody knows when he died. Because everybody knows, where were you? That's why I asked me, where were you when C.S. Lewis died? Nobody knows. Okay, where were you when JFK died? And everybody seems to know. I wasn't born yet. <laughs> Here we go. C.S. Lewis, if there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly hope for the enjoyment of our life is a bad thing, I submit that has no part in the Christian faith. To hope for good and pursue enjoyment in life, that's a part of the Christian faith, he is saying. Indeed, he says, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. We're like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the, at the sea. He closes with this. We are far too easily pleased. He is our, he's getting right at the point of the Corinthians here. What is your hope of glory? He says, for those of us, this is C.S. Lewis thoughts, for those of us who are like Corinth, think, seeking our glory in this life, we're too easily pleased. We're merely pleased with the things of this world. It's too, your tastes are set too low. Instead, we should have hope of glory in the eternal glory that is still to come. When our hope for glory is on Jesus and his coming kingdom, we recognize that we follow Jesus here in this life in humble service and suffering. And this world offers to Christians no useful glory. Look at verses 11. Uh, through the beginning at 12. Uh, 1 Corinthians 4, if you're lost. Paul says this, to the present hour we hunger and thirst, we're poorly dressed and buffeted, that's not buffeted, (laughs) buffeted and homeless, we labor working with our own hands. So Paul's current life in Jesus includes a number of things. He's hungry. Now, he's not always hungry. Hungry, what, what he's trying to explain is he doesn't always know where his next meal is going to come from. There's sometimes he gets there and there's a big meal and he's full. There's other times he gets to where he's going, there's no food, and he goes hungry. And so he's saying, listen, sometimes we hunger. Sometimes we thirst. We don't always know if we're going to have food and the drink that we would need or even like or enjoy. This is a description of his life. He says he's, he's poorly dressed. This means he doesn't have adequate clothing, which at that time, the standards was relatively low. But there's even another place in the Bible where he tells one of his followers, hey, when you come and visit me, bring my cloak. Why? It's almost winter and I don't have a coat. 
So he said, my, his experience is life, I'm not always sure where my next meal is going to come from. And, and I don't have a, a whole bunch of clothes. I, I, I make do with what I have, but I don't have the clothes that I would uh, prefer. He's poorly dressed. He's buffeted, which means he, he experiences suffering in the world, uh, just the way the life goes, but also, as we know with Paul, he experienced persecution. He says he is homeless, and when he would get to a place, he wouldn't always know if he'd have a place to stay or night. Uh, sometimes he would get to a place, and he'd have a nice place to stay. Other times he would get to a place, and he wouldn't have a place to stay. Finally, verse 12, he, he labors, working with his own hands. What he's saying is, is the, the result of his ministry, he didn't always have the financial resources necessary to meet his needs, and so therefore he had a side hustle where he was a tent maker. And why is this important? All of these characteristics that Paul is describing for the Corinthian believers were embarrassing, and a sign that he wasn't successful, and a sign that he wasn't really doing things right, because he wasn't experiencing the sense of profound glory that everybody could bring accolades upon him. He's not saying that this is the necessary experience of every believer. He's not saying we have to be homeless and not have the proper clothing or not have a job. What he is saying is, is this is his experience and these are not signs of failure. In his mind, these are signs that he is willing to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. They weren't even begrudgingly accepted by Paul. He's saying this is, a, this is a function of the ministry of the gospel in my life. Sometimes things go well, other times it's really, really difficult. This is what he says in verse five earlier in the same chapter. Look what he says, verse five, 1 Corinthians four. You can look up just a little bit in your text. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, the Lord will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness. He will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then, when? Then each one will receive his commendation from God. So what Paul is doing here, just a, a few verses later, is saying, I am going to revel in the fact that my experience in this life, whether it be good experiences or bad experiences, is intended to maximize my experience of commendation on that day. So he is not reveling in his lack of glory. He's reveling in rightly knowing when he wants to experience glory, which is in Christ on the day of commendation. So if that means today he has trouble finding a place to live, doesn't have all the clothes he needs, or is reviled by people he led to the Lord, he says, so be it. Because I'm pursuing my commendation on a day when that glory will last forever. Look at verses 12 and 13. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. These are contrasting behaviors. And this is not like the Corinthian believers. The Corinthian believers want to seek uh, favor from the world and affirmation from the world, and so they would, they would want to avoid all of these things. If the world is slandering, the Corinthian believers, the Corinthian believers are gonna say, we need to figure out what we need to change because the world is slandering us. And Paul is saying, no. They're gonna do what they're gonna do, but no matter what the world does, we will pray for them. When we're persecuted, we will patiently endure what is going on. These are contrasting, uh, contrasting uh, behaviors, both with the Corinthian believers and then also with the world. Uh, look at Luke chapter 6, 27 through 31. Jesus says this. I say to you who hear, love your enemies, 
Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish the others would do to you, do so to them. I'm looking here. I just took a minute. I just, just, I'm looking for the qualifiers on this. And tell me, if you, do you find the places where those don't apply? I can't see anything. Oh, there it is. Yeah, election 2024. These don't apply. <laughs> Feel free to post whatever you want online because that's different. It, it always applies. Pray for those who abuse you. If someone strikes you on the cheek, offer the other. This seems inappropriate, doesn't it? Does it bother you that Jesus said this? Certainly he didn't mean what he was saying. Certainly he didn't mean what he was saying. But Paul, over in 1 Corinthians 4, basically says, no, he meant it. No, he was being serious. That wasn't Jesus just being idealistic. Paul then is speaking now a decade or more later from Jesus' uh, uh, resurrection. He's saying, oh no, he was serious. I'm trying to do that right now. And the Corinthian believers, when, when Paul is trying to be like Jesus, the Corinthian believers are embarrassed. Isn't that crazy? Paul echoes these same, thing, th- same things over in Romans chapter 12. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who re- rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. I don't know if the believers in Corinth had read this passage. Repay no one for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. This is the the manner in which the, the Jesus follower executes the life of glory. That's the manner we, we follow Jesus and that means from time to time we get taken advantage of. It means from time to time we're looked down on. That we're seen as fools. This is the man, and all it is, we're just simply, we're not saying we don't want glory. We're making a decision. I'll take my glory then because it lasts forever. So you can have it today. You can have your cheap glory. It might last a little while, but I'll take it when it lasts forever. That's all Paul is saying. It's just a calculation. Okay, last section, uh, 1 Corinthians 4.13. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Paul here is not complaining. If this were his resume, I don't know if you've had to do a resume lately, but if you do a resume, you've got your jobs that you, that you did, what those, the job functions were, and what, what are your weaknesses. I work too hard. <laughs> on the bottom of this, he's got on his resume, key achievements, noteworthy achievements. I am the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. He is reveling in the anticipation that God has been so kind to Paul that he is viewed as so terrible 
that he is anticipating lasting glory. This is not him complaining. This is not saying, my life is so hard. This is him saying, it's happening. It's on. God, by his grace, has provided me the opportunity to live my life the way Jesus did. And I can't wait for that day. But until that day comes, Corinthian believers, you are not going to rob me of the best glory. You can have this glory. I have three passages I want to read briefly. Did I say, uh, yeah, um, so 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 17. Three passages connected with this concept. Paul sees the glory of being like Jesus. Our hope should be in the glory that's still to come. First, uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 17 says this. Oh, look, it's up on the thing. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, not the 74-year-olds. You're like, maybe you're wasting away. We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And just a fair question to the text in your own life. Are you experiencing wasting away? Are you experiencing the weight, the, the, the weight of the, of the broken world on you? And have you said as the weight of the world is, is pressing on your shoulders and, and your life is defined by uh, humility or humiliation and maybe even suffering have we said something must be wrong something either is wrong with me or something is wrong with God that this is and what Paul says this what light and momentary affliction a couple of things on that first of all do not read that verse as somebody who's having a bad day or a bad week or a bad that's, that's just poor you that's just not very kind However, we should read it and we should look at what Paul carried and recognize that the way he processed his suffering was to contrast it with the glory that is to come. He is not saying it's easy. He's not saying it it's, isn't terrible because it is. It's not, he's not saying your heart isn't broken or that the pain isn't unbearable. He's not saying any of those things. He's just simply taking the realities of the world contrasting it with the glory to come and saying, in contrast with what I know is coming, the only way to describe today is light and momentary. Does that, do you make, does that make sense? Because to, to pretend like your stuff is not bad is not the way to, that's not what he's doing. He's saying this is, and so he's setting his hope on, he says, my world is melting away, my body is melting away, but my inner person, I'm hitching my hope wagon to glory that never fades. And the world looks at Paul, and when he says that, what do they say? You're an idiot. And Paul says, yeah, thanks. Let's talk on that day. Let's talk on that day. Romans 8, 16 through 17. Did I say three passages? I'm going to stick to it. Romans 8. Oh, wait, there's another one down there. Don't care, still doing it. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. Good news? What is Christ inheriting? All the things. So what are we inheriting? All the stuff, all the things. 
Oh, I should read the rest. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. He's saying to experience, when we experience the inheritance of God by faith, when we enter into relationship with God through the gospel, he's saying we're making a decision. I want my glory then, my inheritance then, the kingdom then. I, you can keep this one. You can keep this one. Philippians 3, 8 through 11. Indeed, I count everything as a loss of the surpass, uh, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them rubbish. That's a polite word, we won't get into it. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may... Is it up there? Share in his sufferings. We want the power of the resurrection, and as a, we will also share in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, by I may attend the resurrection from the dead. It's just simple uh, way it works. Believe Jesus, participate with him in the glory of the resurrection, also participate with him in the sufferings of this world, but on that day we will be glorified in Christ forever and ever. That's how Paul viewed life. And it's very simple. I know I've said it a million times, I keep saying it. He's just simply telling you, choose, when do you want your glory? Do you want it here or there? And Paul says, I'm going to take it there. Okay, last verse, uh, and I'm serious this time. Mark 8, 34 through 38. Calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he, that is Jesus, said... If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Well, that was a question, so let me ask it again. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? So do the math. This is a profit and loss statement. That's what he's doing. He's, get, he's getting out the books. He's asked his CPA, I want to look at the books of my life and look at the profit and loss statement of my life. And let's say, for example, a person gains the whole world. Okay, so on the column of assets, I have what? Whole world. Okay, now, on the liabilities section, is this, are you familiar with these? Maybe if you have a checkbook, you should be. Um, and some of you don't, and that's why you're having problems. Okay. <laughs> Well, the card worked in the machine, so I thought I had money. I got it. Um, on, the, on, the, on the liability side of the ledger, it says you die. So he's saying, so do the math, gain the whole world, but die. So down there, what do you gain? Nothing. You've profited nothing. That's what he says. So Jesus is just doing some math for us. If you gain the whole world, but you die, you have gained nothing. So what, for what can a man give in return for his soul? The answer is nothing. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous, adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in his glory, the glory of the Father and the holy angels. He's saying, pick your glory. You ashamed of Jesus today and you want the glory of the world? The prophet and law statement says you will gain nothing. 
And Jesus says, but if you want to profit nothing here, gain nothing here, and simply be found in Christ, you gain the glory that lasts forever. Now, we don't need to pursue suffering and humiliation. You don't have to look for it. You don't have to chase it. Sometimes your life will not be characterized by suffering and humiliation. We praise God for that. But the question we have to ask ourselves about our lives, have we built and and catered our life in such a way that we are seeking by any means necessary to avoid suffering and humiliation? Is the goal and trajectory of our life to try and avoid at any cost anything that might look like difficulty, suffering, humiliation, or foolishness? If, the, if the, the trajectory of our life is how do I avoid these things at all costs, we've missed something about the message of Jesus. And if you've lived long enough, you don't, you don't have to chase suffering and humiliation. It's gonna find you. Here's the reality. I don't know how to say this nice. To serve Christ requires entering into difficulty. That's what it, it will happen. To serve Jesus and walk in his ways, it means at some point in your life, you will enter into times of difficulty. And Paul says, bring it on. Because that speaks to my soul that I have a glory that lasts forever. We should look forward to good times. We should anticipate good times in this life and the things that warm our hearts with family and friends and the things God has uh, provided. But the way in which Paul and the way in which the Bible guides us to get through difficult times is to look forward to that day. And what, what I'm saying here is we tend to, during times of difficulty, be too short-sighted into our hopes of what will get us through. You know, sometimes we can say, well, this is what's going on Monday, but I know Friday I'm gonna have the weekend. So we just, we think of things that what can get me through this moment? Uh, I can endure this because I know this is coming. Do you do that sometimes? Maybe, uh, I, I know some people, they plan vacations for this purpose alone. It's like, where are you going? Okay, let's plan a vacation for, for September of 2027 because I, I need to have something to look forward to so I can plow through. So that's a, That's a good way to do things. All Paul is going to tell us is, don't be short-sighted. Because the the real thing that brings us hope is not the vacation next year, it's not the graduation, it's not the promotion, it's not the anticipated uh, increase in income, and whatever those things that we say, uh, you know, I'm looking forward to this, and that's what's getting me through, it it can be too short-sighted. You know too many people who look forward to retirement retired and got sick. Do you know anybody like that? They saved and saved and saved and saved and we're gonna retire and travel the world and they retired, went to chemo, and really retired. Uh, I don't mean to be a downer, but what happens is if that is your hope, isn't it too short-sighted? You don't know if your retirement's gonna pay off. You don't know if your graduation is gonna pay off. You don't know if you're gonna get the promotion. You're You're hitching your hope to something that's too loose. It's not solid enough. Paul says, no, hit your wagon to glory that never fades. That's what will get us through. Everything else is too short-sighted and disappointing. Okay, last thing. Boy, you're hoping. You're going to say, I need need future glory just to get through this sermon. All right, suck it up, buttercup. Here we go. If your hope is in this world alone, meaning you don't have Jesus, 
and your hope is, I hope this life pans out, I want to I describe for you the worst possible tragedy. This happens all the time, especially in our country. The worst possible tragedy that this world pays off for you till your last day. That's the worst possible tragedy, is this world maybe, and this happens to some people, good for them, I guess, where this world does pay off and has ever-ascending glory and success and adulation, and then they ride off into the sunset and they have a funeral that people watch on TV. And that person probably has people write books about them because they made it, and, and that's a tragedy because now their glory is done. That's a, that's a tragedy. We should pray for the reality that this world might be yanked out from under us so we would be awakened to the fact that we need a better glory. That we would then hitch our wagon to the, that glory that, that never fades. <laughs> to get so much of this world that we miss its disappointment and fail to find Jesus is a terrible tragedy. Jesus' glory is better than anything this world has to offer. What is your hope of glory? that your glory now keeps getting better and better, or that eternal glory is still to come. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the love you have shown us in Jesus. We thank you for your patience with us and our fickle hearts, how some days we want to pursue your glory and other days we want to pursue our own. And we are grateful, God, for how you work with us patiently. God, we would pray in this moment that you would give us hearts by your spirit that puts first the glory of your kingdom that is still to come. That we would be willing to endure patiently the, the sufferings and humiliations of this world, knowing that one day we will participate in your kingdom that will never end. God, I would pray that you would allow us by your grace to identify those places where we are resting on the foundation of the glory and stuff of this world. And give us a willingness to admit it, Lord, and agree with you that we have put our glory in short-sighted things. God, I pray that you would open our hearts for what it means for us to enter into difficulty by walking with you in the ministry of the gospel. Whether it be praying for others, whether it be uh, looking for opportunities to serve, whether it be uh, encouraging others, or even being willing to endure hardship because of our faith, we pray, God, that you would give us a heart to walk like Jesus. But I pray most of all, Lord, for those of us who are with us today that don't know you. And God, I would, pr I would pray in this moment you would open their eyes to the shortness of this life and world. And they would choose life in Christ that never ends through faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you stand up with me as we close with a song?